Hey, thanks for joining us here at the Vineyard Church Podcast. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. There's a lot of great resources there that are free and will help you grow closer to God and help you connect with the church. Right now, let's go to our lead pastor, Chris Figueretti, for this week's message. Well, it wasn't long after the confrontation with the religious leaders that Jesus just needed to get away. They had been pounding him and pounding him about trying to find little things that he had done that were wrong or that his disciples were doing that were wrong. Last week, we talked about the kind of the assault over the Sabbath, and and, and they were nitpicking and they were legalistic, but mostly they had created all these rules that made it difficult for people to get to God, and that probably wore Jesus out more than anything else. And so This week, we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 3 and verse 7, where Jesus pulls away with his disciples, and they go to get just away from all that mess. And it says this in verse 7. In fact, before I read it, open your Bible to verse 7 and uh, in Mark chapter 3. And this is what it says. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. There's always a large crowd with Jesus. They, uh, at this point, from this point on, there are people following Jesus wherever he goes. If he wants to get away, he has to kind of sneak away at this point. And the reason why is in verse 8, it says, when they heard about all that he was doing, he's healing people, right? And we're going to read more about that in a minute. It says, many people came from came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Crowds from all over are pushing in on Jesus. Everybody wants a piece of Jesus. Everybody wants to be healed by Jesus. They want him to bless them. They want what Jesus can do in their lives. And in verse 9, it says this, because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, that's why people were coming, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Now, Jesus, being the smartest person who has ever lived, knew some things about crowd control. He also knew some things about um, amplification, right? And so crowd control, Jesus knew that with all these people and crowds and crowds of people pushing in on him, that he was going to get run over. So if he wanted to stop and talk and teach and do that, he needed a buffer. And so if he could get into a boat, and this was something that he, he did on more than one occasion, and he would push out from shore, he could have a buffer and he could speak to the crowd. The other thing is, is if he tried to speak and they were all right here, only the people in the front row would hear. So he could get out away from them a little bit and he could speak to a much larger crowd. And that's what what we see going on here. Now, the folks, the folks as I like to call them, were coming to Jesus because they wanted to be healed. That was the primary thing. There's a healer in town. And, um, and, And they want what Jesus can do for them. And, 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 and the approach is kind of heal me, heal me, give me, give me, where's Jesus? I need something from Jesus. And, and, and they, and, and they kind of treat him like, I don't know, like a vending machine. You know, a vending machine, we go to a vending machine, we put our money in, and we press the button for what we want, and it comes out of the vending machine, and we get that, right? Uh, and if you treat Jesus like a vending machine, you're going to miss out on the real thing. You're going to miss out on the good part. People are coming for what they can get. Bless me, bless me, bless me. Heal me, heal me, heal me. Give me, give me, give me. Not what they can learn. 
They're not coming with a spirit of teach me and shape me and form me, teach me how to be a better husband, a better dad, a better mother, a better boss, a better employee, or how to be a better friend, or how to get control over my life or my mouth or whatever else is out of control. Teach me and make me more like you or more like God. That's not why people are coming. They're coming because they want something from Jesus. Now, Jesus is obviously healing people. This is going on, but there's not a lot of detail shared, especially in this passage. And really throughout the Gospels, there's only about 30 detailed descriptions of of healings. Um, And I believe the reason for that is, is that his primary concern was with the eternal, not the temporal, not the, it wasn't that Jesus wasn't concerned with people's needs or wants. It was that he was more concerned with their eternal situation. And that is why he, he, he came to teach. And we saw this early on in this series in, in chapter one, Jesus has his first day of ministry. A lot of people were healed. Uh, and then the next morning he goes off by himself to spend time with God and a crowd shows up while he's gone. The disciples go find him and say, hey, this is great, let's go back. Lots of people need you. And Jesus answers them by saying, well, let us go somewhere else. Let's not go back to where the need is right now. Let's go to the nearby villages and so I can preach there also because that's, that's why I've come. See, it wasn't that Jesus was unconcerned with their wants and their needs. It's that he was more concerned with their transformation and their eternities. Lots and lots of people come to Jesus for blessing and for what he can give you know, and, and we see that today. You know, we live in a, in a consumeristic culture. Uh, we've been trained to be that as, as good Americans. Our, our media and advertising all makes us believe that it's all about us. And, you know, that seeps its way into, uh, into church as well and into, into what we do with Jesus. And I've talked to so many people over the years who have, uh, their approach with Jesus has been, you know, I come to church and I, I'm, I'm into Jesus because of what he can do for me. I, I want my business to prosper and be successful. I want my kids to turn out normal. I like the good feelings that I get when I come to church or, or maybe, maybe you need a healing. And the, that is why when you kind of get down to brass tacks and you begin to have that conversation, that's why they're coming, not to be transformed by Jesus, to be more like Jesus. See, his main focus is your eternity and your relationship with God. Always has been from the very beginning. Now, if you can get your head and your heart around this idea of eternity and living with an eternal perspective, it changes everything. Living with an eternal perspective changes everything about who you are and how you live. You sleep different. When you, when you realize and you get your heart around the fact that God is in control, that God lives outside of time, that we are only temporarily here for a short number of years, and it's a blip on the, on the timeline of eternity, then when thing, little things go wrong in your life, they're not that big of a deal because God's in control and it's just a small part of life. Really, most of us have not even a a week-long perspective. We're just focused on today and tomorrow, maybe. But on the timeline of eternity, 
that perspective changes the way you sleep at night because you can have peace knowing God is in control. It changes the way you love, right? Again, when you're focused on the next day or two or the next year or two and, and how you can get your needs met, you don't love very well. But when you realize, again, we're on this timeline of eternity and, and, and what happens in this life, whether it's good or bad or otherwise, it's short and God's in control of it, it enables you to love other people well. It enables you to hang in there in relationships when things get tough. Because, well, it's been tough for six months. Maybe it's been tough for a couple of years, but it's just a couple of years in the light of eternity. I can choose to be selfless and love others. It changes the way we work, too. I mean, uh, again, it might feel like the end of the world if you lose that business deal, but it's not. In light of eternity, it's a small thing, and it enables us to make good decisions. It enables us to be uh, people of integrity. It also affects the way we die. It changes that. When you live in light of eternity, it changes the way you die. Um, you know, I've, I've had conversations with uh, funeral home directors, and they're like, what is up with you vineyard people? I mean, you guys are laughing and joking at, at funerals, like, all the time. Uh, why is that? And uh, it's because it's a celebration. It's because we're living in light of eternity. We know where that person has gone, and we're excited for them. And it's not that we don't, you know, we don't cry or mourn. We do, but it's, there's a hopelessness. I've walked with people who, and families who don't have a faith through the dying process, and it is drastically different. It changes the way we die. Most importantly, it changes the way we live. See, when you realize that this life is short, that eternity is forever, and that's where we're headed, that God is in control, he has the number of days numbered for your life, he, he, he's in control of all of it, you don't have to worry. You don't have to live in fear. You can carpe diem, seize the day, suck the marrow out of life, Life can be an adventure when you're not afraid all the time. And again, living in light of eternity changes that. It changes the fun you can have, the impact you can have, the purpose you can, all of it. And that's what Jesus was focused on. He was focused on the eternal, not the temporal. Now, God, and Jesus wanted us to understand this too, God is not a genie. I mean, he's not a genie in a bottle. You can't put him in a bottle. He... He does heal. He's healed throughout the scriptures, but it wasn't his primary focus. But he does heal. He heals today. I have seen that in my own life, in my own body. I've seen God do pretty miraculous things in my life. But I'm going to tell you, more often than not, the, the healing that I pray for, for others or myself, doesn't come. But when it comes, it's like, oh my gosh, that had to have been God. It's pretty cool. Now, why is that? I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that sometimes it does. And sometimes it doesn't. But if that's your focus, then when it doesn't, it's going to wreck your faith. And it's not really the way it works. You know, I, uh, I've, again, been healed from some things. Uh, and I've got some things that I walk with. I have, uh, if you've been around for a while, you remember a few years ago, I... I uh, had to take some time off because I had Lyme disease 
really bad. Well, Lyme disease doesn't go away. It's something that I have to manage on a regular basis. And I have prayed and prayed, God, take this Lyme disease away from me. And it's not gone away. And, uh, you know, that doesn't wreck my faith. That just tells me that there's a purpose in this. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 writes about a thorn that he had in his flesh. And theologians and historians think that that was some kind of sickness that he had going on. And he said he asked God to take it away from him three times. And God basically didn't. And, 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 and God told Paul his grace was going to be sufficient for him. And God had something that he wanted to do in Paul through that. And oftentimes he does in our lives as well. So, then the question is, well, what do we do? Do we, do we pray for healing? I mean, we want to focus on the eternal, but we don't neglect temporal needs and, 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 and regular needs that people have. In fact, I would encourage you, pray. Pray at every, every chance you get. Pray for people, pray for yourself, pray for your family, but don't come to Jesus with that being the focus of the relationship. The focus needs to be change, be grow me. And here's what I'll promise you. You won't get everything you pray for, but you will see God move in your life. He does, especially when you come with that posture. See, if Jesus is your genie in the bottle, you're going to be disappointed. And if he is, and that's the way you're approaching God right now, you need to change your perspective. You need to get this eternal perspective that Jesus was all about. And I would say one more thing on this. When suffering comes, and suffering will come, it's part of life. Jesus said, in this life, you will have trouble. If Jesus is your vending machine, you're going to fall away. You just are. You know, there's a cultural shift going on right now in our world. We're going from what has been a Christian culture in the West to a post-Christian culture. And it's being led by this, this shift is being led and pushed <clears throat> by a school of thought called cultural Marxism. And it's, and it's, leading, our, it's leading our society um, away from God. Uh, it is, uh, we, we see it getting more and more power in the, in the, in the halls of power. Uh, when you look at what's going on with people getting canceled because they voted for the wrong person or they said something that was politically insensitive or whatever and they lose their job over it, all of that is tied into this movement called cultural Marxism. And if you study history at all, if you look at the history of Marxism going back 150 years, eventually and every time they come after the Christians. Uh, eventually and every time the Christians end up suffering. Now, I don't know to what extent that's going to happen in our world, but if things continue in the direction they're going, that's coming. And if Jesus is your vending machine, you're not going to make it. Your faith's not going to make it. We will suffer in this life, but what the cool part is, and even Paul with his thorn in the flesh, there's purpose in it, and you can thrive in it, and it is a reality. All right, see, if you come to Jesus only for what you can get, then you will fall away when you don't get it. This is super important, super important. Well, in verse 11, it goes on. It says, um, whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. 
but he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. So Jesus, we see this consistently through the book of Mark and really through the Gospels. Jesus has this provoking, antagonizing effect on demonic spirits. Uh, when Jesus shows up, they get afraid. They, they, they scream out, or not scream out, but they cry out and say, you know, don't hurt us. They're, they're afraid of Jesus. And Jesus handles them the same way every time. He just says, uh, shut up and uh, get out. That, that's pretty much it. He's not high drama about it. Uh, but wherever he goes, we see a lot of demonic activity. Now, after Jesus, we see some. Uh, throughout the ages, through the, the New Testament and going on into, uh, you know, all through the history of the church for the last 2,000 years. This hasn't gone away, but we never see it as frequently and as uh, consistently as we see it with Jesus. Jesus' presence provoked this. All right. In verse 13, it goes on. It says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him and he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And there's that demon thing again. I don't know, I'm guessing that some of us are a little uncomfortable with that. I don't know, it's kind of an uncomfortable topic. We don't, as Westerners, Western rationalist, reductionist thinking type people, we don't like to think about the spiritual realm and especially the, the demonic side of the spiritual realm, but you have to face the reality of the spiritual realm if you're going to read the book of Mark, if you're going to read the gospels. There's no going through the Gospels and denying the demonic. There are spiritual forces of good and evil. There are angels and there are demons. And we believe that not just because Jesus believed it, although that would have been a good enough reason too, but we believe it because of the experiences, again, of countless Christians throughout the, over, throughout the last 2,000 years. And what Jesus does here is he gives his followers authority, the authority that he has, he gives that authority to his followers to deal with the demonic in the same way he does. Now, one thing you'll notice about Jesus is he doesn't go looking for demons. He doesn't get obsessed with demons. He doesn't even give them really the time of day. When that kind of thing happens, he just goes, shut up, get out, and then he goes on with what he was doing. Guys, sometimes Christians that I've seen over the years will learn about this, this spiritual realm and about you know, the demonic and they get obsessed with it and everything that happens in their life that's bad, it's a, there's a demon or a devil behind it and, and uh, you know, every, everywhere they look, they see one. Don't do that, Jesus didn't do that. Does, is it real? Yes. Are there d demonic manifestations in our day and age? Yes, yes there are, yes there are. It's not a common thing, and we don't go looking for it, and when it happens, it's shut up and get out. That's it. That is it. We need to follow his lead. Well, in verse 16, it goes on. It says, these are the 12 that he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boan. I get this wrong every time. Uh, Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. I don't get sons of thunder wrong, but sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, Jesus, Jesus calls these, uh, these guys to be his disciples. And in fact, um, scholars believe that Jesus had hundreds 
of disciples, but these guys he calls to be his inner circle. We end up calling them apostles. Now, real quick, just a sidebar. In their day, there was an educational system, uh, and the teacher, the very highest part of the educational system was where a rabbi would teach disciples. Rabbi means teacher, disciples means student or follower, uh, and the rabbi would teach and walk with and, and shape the disciples um, with his teaching. Now, Jesus calls these guys to be his disciples along with many others, and then he calls these guys even to a higher level than discipleship. And one of the things I love about this, because this whole rabbi-disciple relationship and the whole religious environment was very stodgy and proper and all of that, and Jesus seems to have a sense of humor about all of this. Jesus had a sense of humor, and so should you, just if you want to learn from Jesus. Uh, Simon, the guy, Simon, he says, I'm going to call you uh, Peter. Well, the word in, in the original language is is um, Petra, which means rock. He, he, Dwayne the Rock Johnson was not the original rock. Peter was the original rock. I'm going to call you the rock, and then James and John, I'm calling you guys the sons of thunder, right? He's putting together a biker gang, right? He's got the rock, and he's got the sons of thunder. Someday I'm going to have a biker gang, and I'm going to call it the sons of thunder. We're going to get a big patch for the back of our leather jacket, all that. Anyway, Jesus has this sense of humor. It is not stodgy. It is not... All proper. He's got, a, he's got a gang of people. And these guys had no businesses or no business being the disciples of a rabbi. They're totally unqualified. Disciples, to get to that level of education, had to be the most qualified people. They had to be the people that got 1,600 on the SAT and, and had you know, extracurricular activities and a job and won awards and everything else. They had to be the best of the best. And a rabbi would screen them and then invite them to follow him or invite them to follow him. Yeah, right. So the way their educational system worked is at around age five, and this was most of the little boys at around age five would go to synagogue school. It was called Beit Sefar. And at Beit Sefar, they would learn and memorize the Torah. Now, the Torah are the five books that Moses wrote, the first five books of the Old Testament. And they would memorize word for word over a five-year period of time, the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So by at age 10, they had memorized more Bible than you or I combined will ever memorize. They took us very seriously. But then they would graduate, and the very best of the best would be invited to go to the next level. And the next level was called Beit Talmud. Beit Talmud. And, and so if they weren't good enough to go on, they would be sent back home to learn the family trade. But if they were, they would go on and they would memorize from age about 10 to 16, they would memorize the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. Genesis to Malachi. I can't even fathom, word for word. Now, they graduate from that, the best of the best of the best. I mean, the very cream of the crop, the people who, you know, 1600 SAT, everything going, they are going to be the leaders in society. Yes. Those folks go on to something in their day they called Bet Midrash. 
And, and basically, they would go to a rabbi and they would apply. Now, the rabbis, interestingly enough, the rabbis did not all interpret the scriptures the same. They used the same scriptures, but one might say, well, this is the law, but this is how you live it out. And that was, that was their teaching. And it, what that was called was the rabbi's yoke. His teachings were his yoke. So when Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, that's what he's referring to. Jesus is like, it needs to be easy to get to God, not hard to get to God. And, and so, um, anyway, that's where discipleship comes in. They go and they apply to a rabbi. They say, I want to take on your yoke. I want to learn your yoke. I want to spread your yoke. And so they will go to a rabbi and the rabbi will interview them and grill them. And if they answer the questions right and he thinks they have what it takes to be the best of the best of the best, the rabbi would say something like this. Come, follow me. And that was kind of the code for, all right, we're going to do this thing. And Jesus, if you remember, as he goes around and calls his disciples, he says, come, follow me. And now he's got this inner circle that he's calling to even a higher level. And what he's saying to them is, guys, you got what it takes. You got what it takes. You can become like me. Now, the interesting part about this, I think the encouraging part about this is that the guys that Jesus called, they didn't make the cut everywhere else. I mean, they were already working. See, Jesus calls not the, the most competent, although he will, but, it, but he calls the willing, the willing whosoevers. And he puts together a, a coalition of the unqualified by their standards. Peter was a businessman and a fisherman. He probably didn't make it out of the first grade, so to speak. James and John, fishermen, they're probably apprenticing with their father, best we know. Matthew was a tax collector. Simon was a zealot, a political revolutionary. These guys were not on the fast track to greatness. They weren't going Ivy League. They were just ordinary, average people. And Jesus looks at them and says, you can become like me. You know, I think God believes in you more than you believe in you. In fact, one of the biggest things that hangs people up is not their doubts about Jesus or their doubts about God, but their doubts about themselves. God believes in you more than you believe in you. I love uh, the, the account in Acts chapter 4. John and Peter, this is after Jesus rose from the dead, and, and uh, John and Peter are in the in town preaching about Jesus and the fact that he rose from the dead and they get arrested and they get drugged before the Sanhedrin. It's their court and they're being grilled by the best of the best of the best of the best. I mean, this is the top of the religious order and they are grilling these guys and like, what do you have to say for yourself? And Peter stands up and delivers this message with boldness and tells them exactly who Jesus was and they're stunned by it all. And in verse 13, Acts chapter 4, it says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They'd been with Jesus. Now, 
These are unschooled ordinary men. This goes back to what we're talking about. They, they, they didn't graduate from elementary school. Uh, they were just off working in the, in the family trade or doing their own business thing. They were not qualified. The word there for unschooled ordinary men uh, in the original language is idiotos. It's the, from the word from which we derive idiots. Now, they were not idiots, but they were uneducated. They were, you know, they were low on the social order. And Jesus puts together this movement of anybody's, this movement of people who are, by societal standards, not, not good enough to do what they're doing. But these unschooled, ordinary men, as the religious leaders had noted, had spent time with Jesus. They had spent time with Jesus, and he changed them. They became like them, and they go, or like him, and they go on to change the course of human history. Unlike anybody had up to that point, and unlike anybody will from that point on, because they had spent time with Jesus, because Jesus believed in them, because Jesus said, you know what? You've got what it takes. You know, the rabbis, well, they were the most respected and revered people of their day. That, that, was, the, that was the track that if you could get on it, everybody wanted to get on. And when Jesus calls these guys, he's saying to them, that doesn't matter. You can become like me. See, Jesus had faith in his band of not good enoughs, his band of unschooled ordinary men. He had faith that they could follow him. And they tripped up along the way. They sure did, and he restored them and forgave them, and they kept going. But he had faith that they could not just follow him, but they could be like him. And here's what I know about Jesus. He has faith in you, too. He believes in you more than you believe in you. He believes that you can follow him, and he believes that you can be like him if you'll spend some time with him. A lot of time following Jesus isn't about our doubts about him. It's our doubts about ourselves. You know, Matthew chapter 14, Jesus sends his disciples out on the, the lake. It's the middle of the night, and they're in a storm. And he goes to them walking on the water. It's a famous account. And when he gets within sight, the disciples freak out. They're like, it's a ghost. Only ghosts walk on water. And uh, Jesus said, no, 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 it's not a ghost. It's me. And Peter says something that I just find fascinating. He says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Now, why would he say that? Well, it's simple. When you understand discipleship, Jesus was his rabbi. He wanted to do what his rabbi was doing, be like his rabbi, and be where his rabbi was. And so he's like, well, if that's really you, then I want to do what you're doing. And Jesus says, come. And Peter steps out of the boat, and he walks out onto the water, and he's doing it. And then it says he saw the wind and waves and he began to sink and he cries out to Jesus, Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches down, picks him up out of the water and says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You know, and I've always thought, why did Peter lose faith? And then it occurred to me, Peter didn't lose faith in Jesus. Jesus was still walking on the water. I mean, <laughs> Peter lost faith in himself. He began to doubt himself. And Christians, if you are a follower of Jesus, we do the same thing. And you got to remember, yeah, you're going to trip up along the way. But Jesus believes in you. He believes in you more than you believe in you. 
And it's not about your ability. It's not about getting it right every time. It's about spending time with Jesus and being transformed in his presence. And God will take you from an ordinary, average person to a world changer. Your life will have purpose and meaning. Your decisions will get better. You'll love more fully and more deeply the people around you because you'll become more and more like him. So, when you come to Jesus, come to Jesus not for what you can get, but to become more like him. Grow a sense of humor. We'll all benefit from that. Spend time with him regularly. And the more you do, the more you will become like him. Now, people ask, how do I spend time with Jesus? Well, I'm going to give you a handful of practices. One is just come to church. Make church a priority in your week. Not just when it's convenient, but, you know, this is, this is, a, this is on the calendar. I'm going to church this week. Go to church. When we get together and worship together, powerful things happen. Uh, find a small group of people to be a part of, a, a, a life group or a church at home group, those small groups. Going back to Jesus and those, he called together a small group because powerful tri life transformation happens in the context of those smaller groups. Read your Bible regularly. Listen to sermons on podcasts or, you know, watch them online like maybe you're watching this one. And worship. I want to encourage you to you know, put on some worship music in the car and sing songs to God. It doesn't just have to be on Sunday morning. But when you spend that time, or go for a walk with God and just talk to him, pray. And as you do, you will become more and more like him. Your life will be transformed. And remember, he believes in you. And never forget, because that changes everything. Now, here's what I know. There are some of us today that our approach to Jesus has been, gimme, 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 heal me, heal me, heal me, bless me, bless me, bless me. It's been all about what you can get. Jesus is kind of an add-on to your life. I know because I've had conversations with lots of you. And that needs to change. You're going to be disappointed. And the good stuff is not found in what you can get, but the transformation Jesus can do in your life. And so you need to repent. You need to come to a place in your life where Jesus is about Jesus, not about you. And I want to encourage you to have, to find some time to do business with God on that level. And then there are some of us, you've never come to Jesus. You've never, like, Jesus is calling you. You can feel it in here right now. He's saying, come, follow me. And you're like, well, I don't, I don't know. Or, I don't know how to. And it's really just as simple as coming to him and saying, I want to. Saying, maybe just close your eyes and pray something like this, if that's you. If you've never, never decided to follow Jesus, you can decide right now. Just tell him, say, Jesus, I, I, I choose to follow you. I want to be your disciple. I want to become like you. I believe you came to show us how to live. I believe you came to, to die for the forgiveness of sin, and I need that forgiveness. Come into my life. Be my rabbi. Be my Lord. And make me more like you.
In your name I pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us here at The Vineyard. It's our greatest desire to see you find and follow God, and we hope that this podcast has helped you do just that. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. Again, thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.